0: Crossway Church, Sermon Audio. Good morning. Uh, You can take out your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 1. For our guests, my name is Steve Heitland. I'm one of the pastors here. We're very glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, we are excited to announce that we have a marriage seminar coming up in March. So on Saturday, March 11th, uh, we're having a, a seminar called Wedded Bliss, uh, and this is going to be taught by Josh Squires. Uh, Josh is a friend of mine. He and I are going to school together. He's a minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, he's a good man. He, he writes for Desiring God. He's been pastoring and counseling for a long time, and so we think that this will be Uh, Something that you'll really enjoy. Uh, We want to encourage you to invite friends, family, others. Um, We are going to have the registration up page probably up in the next week. Uh, Christian chicken is more expensive than it used to be. So we're trying to figure out our costs for lunch. Uh, But Saturday, March 11th um, from about 9 a.m. to 2, 2 2.30 is going to be the seminar. Lunch will be included. Uh, So uh, we want to make sure that that's on your calendars and you're looking forward to that. So let's read uh, Proverb 1, verses 8 to 19, and then we'll pray. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. And you've given us this book especially because we need wisdom. We are finite and fallen and frail. We are easily confused, easily led astray. Uh, Your word teaches us that sin so easily entangles us. Our hearts are susceptible to deception and folly and pride and all manner of rebellion against you. And it's because you are good that you have revealed yourself to us. It's because you're good that you, you sent your son for us so that we could know love and truth and grace and forgiveness. And we pray that as we sit under your word now that you would give us humble hearts. You oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. We want, we want your grace, Lord. And so please give us humility that we would respond to your truth so that we could walk in the good that you have designed and that you hold out to us so abundantly, and so that we could live for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are all shaped by the stories we've been told and the stories we tell about ourselves. Our stories give meaning and purpose to our lives. They tell us who we are and how we fit into the world. Just last week, we learned that you cannot tell the story of Peter Privetera without knowing about an artisanal coffee shop romancing the Bean." That's part of who he is. That's part of what you need to know to know Peter. Stories locate us in time and place. They locate us in purpose. But we live in an exceptionally challenging time for understanding for making sense of ourselves and our place in this world. And I think there's at least three reasons for this. First is just the explosion of media and communication technology. We, we have more access to more information than anyone ever before in history. We are very much suffering from information overload. We, we now expect to have access to the people in our lives at any moment. You can track the location of your children by their mobile devices. You know what people are doing by their social media updates. And so we, we expect to have accurate reports for things happening on the other side of the world almost instantaneously. Folks who can't find Ukraine on a map will put their flag on the social media and think that they know what's going on over there. We were, just, we're constantly swept up in this overflowed, this tsunami of information presented by people with all kinds of agendas, and somehow we're supposed to make sense of it all. The second reason I think it's hard for us to make sense of our, ourselves and our place in the world is that Western society has largely abandoned the stories… That pointed to meaning three and four hundred years ago. They've replaced them with new, far inferior stories. And so humans used to be the the creation of Almighty God in his image to live and work and move for his glory. And now we're just the latest stop on the evolutionary train emerging out of the primordial ooze and heading who knows where. Where? Which means we're now the product of our own deepest longings and urges as we look inside ourselves for that ever-elusive happiness that we're sure we can find if we just look hard enough and deep enough. If we can just arrange our circumstances just so, if we can find our soulmate and our perfect vocation or take that perfect holiday overseas, then we will be happy, we'll be fulfilled, we'll finally be content And so we've abandoned the old stories and replaced them with these lame alternatives. And the final reason that I'll highlight for why I think it's hard to make sense is that we are, in the words of Neil Postman, amusing ourselves to death. So many people, when they're faced with the struggles of life, the inevitable struggles of life, faced with the conflicting and confusing stories that are out there, faced with just the drudgery of the day-to-day, so many people just turn to entertainment They don't want to think deeply. They don't want to deal with the drama. They certainly don't want to go against the flow. And so they just check out and give themselves over to whatever mindless diversion will amuse them. It acts like a drug. It anesthetizes against the pain, the struggle, the suffering for a season. And then God comes along with his word and he tells us the great story the story that makes sense of all of our stories and teaches us what every story is meant to be. The great story teaches us why we long for story and we long for meaning and significance and purpose. It teaches us that we were made for far more than the world's stories would have us believe. The great story recorded in God's word teaches us that we were created, created in the image of God, created for the glory of God. We were not evolved, we're created in God's image to work for his glory. We're created to fill the earth with his image bearers who would exercise dominion and demonstrate and declare the glory of God. One of the great truths captured in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is that Edmund and Lucy and Susan and Peter are not mere English boys and girls. In Narnia, they are kings and queens, the sons of Adam And the daughters of Eve were made to rule over Narnia, to fight evil and to establish a kingdom in righteousness. And every story that we enjoy in this age, every true and deep story contains similar themes and similar realities. So one of the primary ways that we fight against the ungodliness of this age is by understanding and living out and calling others into the great story that the Lord has revealed to us through his word. The world is selling us uh, insipid and pale imitation. They may be able to dress it up all pretty with their CGI and their technology, but at the end of it, their message is quite lame. They don't have anything transcendent, anything soul-stirring, anything truly beautiful, anything that builds and endures. They're very good at entertaining and terrible at providing meaning. Last week, Peter laid the foundation for us in the book of Proverbs, and he showed us that what wisdom consists of and where it is to be found in the fear of the Lord. And beginning today and going through the rest of this series through Proverbs 9, we're going to be brought into a father's advice to his son. This is a king teaching the crown prince the story of life. And so we need to recognize that the Proverbs are not merely helpful principles, they're not fortune cookie truths, they're not sound bites or old-timey wisdom. Proverbs are part of the great story of God, pointing us to him and to his purposes in the world. You can wrench a proverb out of context and make it say almost anything, that's actually not very difficult to do, but wisdom, true wisdom requires you to see these truths within the context of the great story, to apply them to your life, and then to bear their fruit. There's a very real sense in which, you, in, in, if you wit, in which if you engage the Proverbs as data points to memorize, you will never understand them. These are not pithy sayings to be admired from a distance or to be hung up on your wall. These are profound soul-orienting truths that rightly understood and apply lead to life itself. So last week's passage was the introduction to the book and it revealed two great principles, two themes of wisdom. The first is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of the wisdom. And the second is the reality of two paths in life. There's the path of the fool and the path of the wise. And so in the rest of our series, from here to Proverbs 9, we're going to see Solomon, the king, giving direction to his beloved son. And he's going to call his son to choose his wife well. He's going to say, son, there's only two women in the world. There's Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. You must reject Lady Folly. And you must love and treasure and commit for life to Lady Wisdom. She is the way to happiness and to peace and to flourishing. Lady Folly is the way to death and destruction. So here's where King Solomon is going to begin his instruction to his son and then by extension to us this morning. Listen to wisdom so you can resist evil gain in God's world. Listen to wisdom so you can resist evil gain in God's world. We're going to unpack Solomon's charge to his son in three parts. The first is the glory of listening to godly authority. The very first thing we should notice in verse 8 is that this is paternal instruction. It's a father speaking to his beloved son. And so, children, if you want to know what part of the Bible most speaks to children, it's Proverbs. And it's especially Proverbs 1 to 9. This is a father speaking to his son. These are explicit instructions to children. You know, obviously all of the Bible speaks to all of us, but this is explicitly addressing children. And so, you want to listen. You want to pay attention to what God is saying to you in his word now, these, since these are only two short verses, but packed in them are three things that we can learn about parenting and godly authority from verses 8 to 9. And the first is that the father takes the lead. He is the first to speak. And throughout Proverbs 1 to 9, the father is leading. The mother has a role. You'll see her referenced a few times in these chapters. She actually plays a more prominent role later in the book. But the father is undeniably the leader of the family. He sets the tone. He provides the direction, the instruction. He's meant to be the sage. He's the older man who has walked with the Lord and grown and matured and who now has wisdom to offer to his son. So men, we need to have that vision for masculine godliness. Young men, you need to have that vision for masculine godliness that you would grow to be the sage. That's part of what God's calling you to do as you grow and mature. You need to have a positive vision for how God works in a man, how he's designed and called you to function as men so you know what true leadership is and so you can lead well when you're called upon. And you might say, well, you don't understand, my, my dad didn't lead well, or, or my dad was a wicked man, he was, he was lazy, he was a drunk, he was selfish. Or you might just say, I, I don't know how to lead, I get overwhelmed, I don't know what to say. And while those things do present some degree of challenges, they have some degree of validity, They're also ultimately secondary at best because growth in masculine godliness is not ultimately conditioned on the example you had, and it's not ultimately produced by some program or some formula that you follow. Growth in masculine godliness comes by taking responsibility for everything and everyone that the Lord has entrusted to you, getting your arms fully around the responsibilities that the Lord has given you. When a man does not lead his wife or his children, when he doesn't take responsibility for everything, for, his, for the state of his own life and his family, then he's inflicting pain on everyone. He's selfishly pushing his problems off onto others because he's unwilling to bear the cost himself. We can justify it however we like, but it is cowardice and selfishness through and through, and you will see the devastation in the lives of the people entrusted to that man if he sloughs off that responsibility. But, but, if a man begins to lead, if a man begins to step into the responsibilities that the Lord has entrusted to him, if he'll, he'll recognize his weakness, his lack, his need, and cry out to the Lord for grace and mercy and wisdom and strength and courage and perseverance, he will grow and the people he's leading will benefit from his growth. They'll, they'll be cared for. They'll be corrected. They'll be protected. If he has the endurance and the courage to stand up and endure the pain and bear the cost of leadership, then those he's leading will thrive. You'll see life and strength and peace and joy in their lives because he's carrying burdens that they don't have to carry You'll see holiness in their lives because he cares them enough to confront them and to work them through their sin. So don't miss or minimize the importance of these six little words. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Those are weighty, weighty words. And notice, a father who has loved and led well needs only say that. It's the father who's not leading well, who's resorting to threats and to sulking and some sort of manipulation. When you lead well, you just say, listen, son, listen. So first, the father leads. Second, the father's leadership establishes the mother. That's the second part of verse eight. So first, he calls his son to listen to him, and then second, he calls his son to respect and to respond to his mother. One of the capital crimes in our home is disrespect for mom. My children know there is no possible world in which it's okay for them to disrespect their mother, to disrespect my wife. So, godly masculine authority establishes, it recognizes and establishes the structures that God has built into the world and in the home. That means the authority of the mother. So, part of a father's job is to make sure his children listen to his wife. And to do that well, he needs to love and care for and lead his wife. So he's modeling a godly disposition toward her. And so he's helping her to carry her responsibilities with faith. A father who's loving and leading his wife will help her to grow in godliness. He'll help her and establish her authority with the children. The third thing we can learn about godly parenting from these verses is that the father sets a positive vision. So when I presented this theme, I I worded it negatively, right? Resist evil gain. And, And I worded it that way because that is the emphasis of this passage. Of these 12 verses, 10 of them are telling us what not to do. But the Bible never gives us bare prohibitions. It never just says, don't do this. It always has a positive vision. It's always linked to the grace and redemption of God. So we reject evil because righteousness is so much better Not just because we don't want to be evil. So before the father gets into the nature of the evil that the son needs to resist, that he's calling his son to resist, he offers his son a positive vision. He tells his son, listen to me, son, and listen to your mother, for there is great blessing in it, a graceful garland, pendants for your neck. These are blessings, they're rewards, they're the benefits that the son will gain through godliness. And it's not an individualistic pursuit for the son. The son gains these benefits through listening to the godly authorities that the Lord has placed into his life, his father and his mother. So godly authorities help us to see and love the story of God. And of course, discipline and correction are part of that. We, we must not be slack on those because the Lord calls us to those things. That, that's an important part of loving our children. Hebrews teaches that. And it's very important that our disposition towards parenting is fundamentally positive. We're not just playing defense. We're not just trying to keep our children safe. We're not just trying to keep them out of trouble. We're not just disciplining and correcting. Those are real concerns, but they are decidedly secondary. Godly parents raise their children to know and love and enjoy and obey the Lord. We call them to avoid evil because God is good. We call them to obey him because that is the very best life possible. We want our children to flourish and to thrive. And as God's creatures in God's world, that comes through obeying God. So look at the promised reward here. A graceful garland for your head and, pen, or, yeah, head and pendants for your neck. Pendants contain precious jewels. So this is wealth. And it is publicly visible. The father's telling his son that if the son will listen to him, the son will prosper. So the son who obeys the godly authority of his parents by listening to them and responding rightly to the Lord will be blessed. He'll receive the favor of God. This is not the prosperity gospel. It says God's the cosmic ATM and if you just have the pin code of faith, you you can unlock anything you want. But it's also not divorced from the realities of this world. Many of our biblical heroes were fabulously, unimaginably wealthy. Men like Job and Abraham and David had more wealth than we could fathom. And the Bible is filled with promises of reward. And this this passage is focused on the concept of gain. How do we gain in this life? So we need to recognize that the book of Proverbs speaks in what we might call generic categories. So generally speaking... Those who obey God will do better in this life than those who don't obey him. If you follow the wisdom of Proverbs, if you work hard, if you're faithful and diligent, if you're wise with your resources, if you don't waste them on ungodliness, you will, generally speaking, be better off than the person who scorns that wisdom. There are always exceptions, and our egalitarian age just wants to flatten everything out to the exception, act like there's no such thing as proverbial truth, but things are a certain way in God's world. Part of how Proverbs serves us is by orienting us to the world and the way that God designed it, the way of wisdom, the way of wise living in reality as God created it to be. And so to use a a carpentry metaphor, if you have a fine piece of furniture that you're going to sand, you have to sand with the grain right, if you sand across the grain, all you're going to do is produce these ugly scratches that ruin the furniture. You have to go with the grain. And so Proverbs shows us where the grain lies in the world as God designed it. He shows it, here's the grain, here's how you live within the good of how God created the world to be. And if we do that, we will flourish. And that, as we'll see in the next two points, is in stark contrast to how the wicked pursue gain. So we have to listen to wisdom so we can resist evil gain in God's world, which brings us to the second point, the folly of consenting to evil. So we've seen how the father has called his son to life and godliness, and he's, he's laid before him this positive vision for life. He's saying, son, as you look at the years ahead of you, as you plan out your path, choose carefully, right? The options are only two, and when you go to marry, choose Lady Wisdom, now he's going to warn the son away from the, the alternative, Lady Folly. And he does it in part on the basis of identity. And so I want us to know there's something subtle but important in the text here. The father knows that there's only two groups of people in the world. There's those who love and fear the Lord and therefore obey him. And those who despise and reject the Lord and are in rebellion against him. And so the father is presenting options to the son as us versus them. So look at verse 10. He says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Verse 11, if they say, right, so the sinners are they, they're them. We're also going to see the sinners use this us versus them mentality. They're offering the young man a new identity, a new belonging. They say, come with us. Let us lie in wait. Let us ambush. Let us swallow them alive. We shall find. We shall fill. And it goes on and on. So the enticement of sin... It's not just whatever pleasure sin has to offer, and, and sin almost always has immediate pleasure to offer. It's also the allure of belonging to a new group, of, of gaining the approval of a different group. Come join us, the rebels are saying. We, we're offering you approval and freedom from restraint. So you can do whatever you want and have the approval of your peers. What could be better? So there's battle lines being drawn here. The father's saying, son, you belong here with us, with God's people. We fear and obey the Lord. Don't go with them. And the sinners are saying, come join us. Be part of us. Look at all that we have to offer. And we're generous. Look at verse 14. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. So saying, see, we're all equal here. We're, we're going to steal these riches from everyone and we're going to put them in the common pot and then we're all going to benefit together. It's, it's socialism, 2,800 years before Marx and just as successful. So we have to notice the brazenness of these sinners. They're very upfront about their intentions. They ambush the innocent. They label them innocent. They ambush the innocent without reason. They're on the lookout for precious goods, what they describe as plunder, which is the fruits of theft. They know what they're doing is selfish and unrighteousness. There's no possible justification for what they're doing. Proverbs does speak mercifully to those who are desperately poor and steal food to survive. There's a mercy there. You can get that. There's none of that here. There's no justification. And these sinners don't care, they just don't care. They're doing what they want. They're confident in the appeal of their program. They're also confident that they're going to get away with it. You see where they say, we'll swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. They're saying, there will be no evidence left of what we've done. We'll get away with it all. No one will catch us. That's why they don't even bother to hide their wicked intentions. It's just all right there on the surface. So you see how shrewd the appeal of these sinners is. They're not threatening this young man, and they're not insulting him. They're holding out the pleasures of sin and the pleasure of belonging. Sin promises to make us happy, including gaining the approval, the approval of people that we want to impress. That's part of its appeal. So they say, come with us and enjoy the good things in life. Come with us and gain riches without toil. Come and enjoy, feed your selfishness without consequences. This is the lie of every get-rich-quick scheme. It's also the lie of pornography, that you can have any pleasure you want without work and without consequences. Both of these lies are not only untrue, but they are unspeakably cruel because they are the black ice on the road to death and hell. They're the the foliage that's covering the pit that has the spears pointed upwards, sharpened and poisoned to kill and destroy. So notice how the father, knowing these things, instructs his son. He simply tells the son, do not consent. Do not consent. Do not go along with this. Uh, you, You need to see through this. And part of the way you do that is by seeing it the way the Lord sees it. This is sheer wickedness. It's built on envy and selfishness and lies. And if the young man is humble and wise, if he loves his father and fears the Lord, he will not consent because he knows who he is. He's the crown prince. If he goes along with these sinners, his only way to go is down. Socially, he's going down. He's turning his back on the reality, on the, the gift of grace and kindness, the family and blessings that the Lord has graciously gives him. He knows that what he already has is so much greater than anything that these sinners have to offer him. He knows that as he fears and obeys the Lord, that he can receive gain without regret, gain without compromise, gain without shame, gain to be generous, gain to be received and enjoyed in faith as a kind gift from the Lord. So, we have to listen to wisdom so we can resist evil gain in God's world. Which brings us to the third point the destruction of joining with evil. We've come now to the Father's final instructions to his Son and to his insight into what these foolish sinners are doing. First is his command in verse 15 My Son, do not walk in the way with them, hold back your foot from their paths. So, if we take all of the father's instructions to his son together, it's, son, listen to me and your mother, don't consent to sinners, and don't walk in their paths. None of that is overly complex or difficult to understand, is it? One of the ways that the devil is particularly active in our world today is in making straightforward moral matters seem complex. And the way he's done that has been in fighting for control of the dictionary right? What do words even mean anymore? Does anyone even know? A great part of the moral confusion of our age lies in this. We've taken virtues which have stood for centuries and oriented persons to truth, and we've turned them on their heads. So love and tolerance and freedom and equality and progress, those are all good words, In many ways, those are uniquely Christian words. They've come into history with Christianity. If you compare where we're at with where the pagan world used to be, but they're words that are in the process of being profoundly redefined, twisted into new shapes, granted new identities and meanings. And this can be incredibly disorienting, even for Christians, right? No one wants to be a freak. No one wants to be labeled a hater or a bigot. That's why Solomon wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you start with the fear of the Lord, then your basic desire, your orientation, your drive is to know and love and obey him. You want to please him. It's like when a child comes up and says, daddy, what do you think about this? What's the child doing there? Why are they asking that question? They're trying to make sense of the world. And they're trying to understand the world through your eyes and the way you do. They they want to know what's right. They want to know what's going on. And they want to know what pleases the Father. That's a profoundly Christian question. Daddy, what do you think about love? What do you think about tolerance or equality or freedom or progress? What does God think about those things? How does he define them? We need to recognize that uh, much of our society, and especially our our cultural elites, despise what God says about those things. And they're incredibly active in trying to recruit or impose their understandings onto others. They're saying, come with us. Let us do this. Join in on this. And some Christians in the name of of love or winsomeness or mission will go along with that in the express hope of of gaining a hearing, right? Well, I'm just going to, I just want to bear witness But it's at least as likely they just don't want to be labeled as those kinds of Christians. But our Father's instructions are clear. He says, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your feet from their paths. And then the Father exposes the means and the motives of the wicked. They are eager for evil, right? Their feet run to it. They make haste to do it. So these people are committed to their program. There's no reluctance here. They're just willingly giving themselves over to it. And then the father says, consider the true nature of their folly. What's really going on here? He says, even birds, which aren't the brightest animals, know that when they see a fowler laying a trap, they should fly away, right? That net is not for their good, but not these guys. They're both the predator and the prey. That's how dumb they are. Verse 18, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush, ambush for their own lives. They think they're, they're smarter than everyone else, but God is not mocked, and consequences are on the way. And here's where the Father reveals the true, their true motives verse 19. They are greedy for unjust gain. They want reward without work. They want benefit without toil. They want bene, uh, pleasure without responsibility. So, are are they lazy? Well, maybe, but I think they're actually fairly active in this passage. I think it's more accurate to say they're covetous and envious. They look at what others have gained through righteousness, and they both despise and desire it. Thomas Sowell has defined uh, social justice as envy plus rhetoric, and he's getting at something there. It's very easy to look at others in life and assume that they have it better than you did, And more than that, that it's unjust. You're getting a bum deal, right? And, and that envy is the seed of so much evil. About a thousand years after the time of Solomon, Paul wrote about a similar lesson to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So you can dress up envy in any fancy terms you want. A couple years ago, the Smithsonian Institute labeled it white supremacy, which was the most racist thing I've ever heard and incredibly insulting to everyone. But that is the kind of wisdom that the world has to offer. It's the kind of wisdom that's being actively peddled in our government, in our corporations, in our educational institutions. It's it's parroted by our media elite. It's active all around the world. So do we think that we're somehow unaffected by that, that appeal to the envy, that desire for unjust gain? We are constantly barraged by it, in, in our music and entertainment, in the advertisements we take in, in the framing of every news story that we read about. It's captured our educational institutions. It's seeking to catechize our children, and we are not strong enough to be unaffected by that, and our Father knows that. So he's given us his word. He's revealed his truth to us, and he's calling to us. He's saying, my son, hear my instruction." Hear my instruction. Do not consent. Do not walk in the way with them. So you see how urgent and necessary it is for us to study God's word regularly and deeply so we can know and love God. We can gain the the wisdom and discernment that we need to see through the the noise, the chaos, the confusion that's currently passing for wisdom in this world. There's three C's of virtue, I think. Conviction, clarity, clarity. And courage. Do I see what's true? Do I stand on it? And do I have the courage to endure? There's no shortcut to this. You you can try to find a shortcut, right? You can listen to sermons or podcasts or read blogs or read tweets or take in whatever and find other ways to let other people do the thinking for you. But that's the search for a guru, right? I need a life coach. I need a therapist. I I need someone to tell me what to think. But that tends to be fairly shallow. It won't produce real growth and maturity. And you certainly cannot farm out the application of truth to others. You cannot farm that out. Even if you find a good source for truth, you have to apply it yourself to your life. That kind of hard work requires perseverance. It requires the humility that sits under God's word to be evaluated by God, to respond to what he says. It requires a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Generally speaking, the most sinfully critical people are those who've taken in the most content and applied it to themselves the least. They have tons of critique for everyone else while explaining away and approving of the ample evidence of their own sins and failures in life. And may the Lord have mercy on us. So those desires of perseverance and humility and righteousness Those things are not native to us. Left to ourselves, we would not desire God and his truth. We would be dumb and unresponsive before him. We would despise and disregard his wisdom. That's actually why people seek out gurus, right? They've rejected God and they're looking for an alternative, right? What's a viable alternative who will guide me into the good life? But if you're recognizing that you have a need for wisdom, if you're recognizing the inadequacy of your own resources, if you're confused or discouraged by the state of the world and wondering what it all means and where it's all going, then there is very good news indeed. Because we don't just have a reliable source for wisdom. We have wisdom himself. Jesus Christ came in the form of a servant and in a way that the world despised as foolishness. And Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 1, and I'll ask Josh to come up. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but, Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Our God delights to show himself stronger than the world through what the world mocks as weak. He delights to show himself wiser than the world through what the world mocks as foolish. Jesus Christ is the strength and wisdom of God. He's not our guru. He's not our guide. He's not our therapist. He's our savior, which is better than any of those things. He's the source of all life and all hope and all happiness and all peace. He is wisdom itself. He is the great king over all. He is ruling over history, including the confusion that surrounds us. He rules over history and is bringing it to his appointed ends. And in knowing and loving and obeying him, there is great and lasting gain indeed. If you want great gain, go to Christ. So listen to wisdom so you can resist evil gain in God's world. Listen to wisdom so you can gain all things in Christ. Let's pray. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.